Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. This time we're joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States for another look at the Book of Revelation. And today we have the first of two podcasts on the seven seals in Revelation chapter 6 through to chapter 8 verse 5. And in this podcast, we'll hopefully have the time to look at chapter 6. Alistair, hi, welcome again. It's good to be back with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. Now, how do chapters 6 to 8 verse 5 fit into the structure of the whole book of Revelation? So we've had the book or the scroll introduced in the chapters that precede, and this is the stage of opening up the scroll. It's the first of three phases. You have the seals, you have the trumpets, and then you have the bowls. And the seals come first. They have to be opened up before the scroll can be read and enacted. And this is the opening up of the scroll. It's something that we're waiting for. And it was only possible because the lamb was worthy to open up this book. Now, to this point, we've had a number of sevens. We've had the seven churches. We've had the seven seals introduced for us. And now we're going to see these play out over the next two chapters. We'll see the sequence here is very similar to ones that we'll encounter in the chapters that follow concerning the trumpets and the bowls. And so it's worth paying attention to the ways that these map on to each other, which we'll be doing very much, I think, in the later treatments of those chapters. Now, what are the seven seals and why are there seven of them? Is the number perhaps significant? Oh, I don't know why the number seven could be significant. We've never seen the number seven in the book of Revelation before. No. Well, if we think about the book of Revelation, there are so many sevens. We can think about the lampstands, the um, stars in the hand of Christ. We can think about the angels. We can think about the seven spirits before the throne. We've got the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, and several other sevens as we go through the book. And so the natural association would be with creation and themes of creation, decreation, recreation, new creation. And I think that would probably be the most likely way to understand the reason for the seven. Yes, we'll come on and look at how the um, horses relate to the, or the seals relate to the uh, days of creation in a moment. But I, I wonder, when do the events described here take place? My understanding is that they take place after the ascension. They're initiated by the arrival of Christ, as it's described in places like Daniel 7, his receipt of the throne and the authority that comes with it. And that sets in motion the opening up of the seals that sets out the judgment of God and the establishment of this new age. What I wonder is the connection, or is there a connection between the seven seals and the book of Acts? Yes, we can think about the book of Acts as giving a, an earthly perspective upon what's taking place in heaven. It's very helpful to think about that sort of interaction we can maybe think about the book of Daniel, where we have descriptions of events in heaven or symbolic visionary accounts of what's taking place that we can map on to specific events on earth. We can think maybe of the different empires that are described in succession in Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 7, 
where you go down the image that's presented to us and you can see the gold corresponds with Babylon, the silver corresponds with the next um, empire of the Medes and the Persians, then you have the Greeks and then you have the Romans. And that sort of mapping of a heavenly or visionary or imaged structure onto reality itself in the un in the non-visionary form is something that we should be familiar with by the time we come to revelation so within revelation what we have i believe are events that are described in the book of acts presented to us in visionary language and in images that help us to understand aspects of those events that we would not were we just paying attention to the earthly perspective upon what's taking place to what extent are the seals about judgment the book seems to be representing judgment about to be unleashed we can maybe think about the judgments written on the front and the back as described in the book of ezekiel when he receives that scroll and here it seems that to enact those judgments the seals have to be broken and as the seals are opened then it is possible to put in motion the judgment that is written upon the scroll. And so we've already encountered this image of a scroll with things written on the front and back. It's associated with judgment earlier on. It seems natural to read it in the same way here. So the church's mission is in the early days of, of the church, as described in Acts, is about judgment. Among other things, so can mm. certainly think of the ways that as the gospel is presented, there's an urgency that Christ is coming in judgment. He's Lord of all. And that call to submit that there is a day coming when the Lord will judge the world by his Christ, and you must respond to that message. That's very clearly something that is throughout the book of Acts and already anticipated in the ministry of John the Baptist and elsewhere. So it seems to me that this is very much a message of judgment, but also one where there is this offer of salvation to all who will receive this Lord. Now, Elisa, who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these four famous figures? And how do the horsemen relate back to the night visions of Zechariah? Yes, we have um, images of horses in a couple of chapters of Zechariah, we have horses and then we have ch chariots led by horses. And if we follow through the night visions of Zechariah, we can see that they start off these different colored horses in a dell, in this situation where the people of God have fallen into a lower state. And by the end, they're going out between the bronze mountains, going out to the four corners of the earth. And there's a sense that God is on the move. There's about to be judgment wrought upon the nations. And that vision is one of uh, sort of turning around of the fortunes of the people from what we see in the earlier chapter. But here it seems that those images are being drawn upon and then built upon further. There are similarities, but there are also differences. We might think about the order of the horses begins with the red horse and then you have the sorrel and white horses in um, chapter one of Zechariah and then in chapter six of Zechariah we have four chariots and their different um, colors in order red black white and um, 
dappled, I think. And so here we have similar, but not quite the same order. And there are there's the um, pale instead of the dappled. Now, our four cherubim turn up again, the four cherubim around the throne of God. How are they connected, I wonder, with the four horses? They are the ones that summon the four horses in succession. So the first summons the white horse, and then the second, the red, the third, the black, and then the fourth, the pale. And that suggests that there's some sort of correspondence between the living creatures and the horses. Not that they are the same, but that the horses belong to or are paired with the living creatures. After day, after the fifth, from the fifth seal onwards, there are no horses and the living creatures aren't mentioned. Mm. Uh, here's another question for you, Alistair. How are the cherubim and the horses linked with the constellations? This is fascinating, this. But, but, but. It is, yes. Perhaps the best place to go to is the book of Ezekiel, the opening vision. Is it again one of those passages that, if you know it, will really help you to read Revelation. So the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, we've already seen some elements in the writing on the front and the back of the scroll. Can maybe think of something like Daniel 7 as another key passage underlying the book of Revelation. But in Daniel 7 and in Ezekiel, you've got these living creatures that are facing in different directions. And those different directions correspond with faces. Those faces um, are often associated with the four gospels. So we think about the ox, the lion, the eagle, and the man. And those correspond with different facets of the single cherubim or with cherubim facing in different <clears throat> directions. And having that connection, I think, helps us to understand a further connection which you suggest which is with the constellations so when we think about the ordering of the camp of israel they're ordered with key tribes at each side so judah is the head of the tribes in um, numbers leads the tribal camp out to war judah is naturally associated with the lion if we go through particularly genesis chapter 49 and deuteronomy 33 there are associations with each one of the tribes. Um, Reuben um, could be the water bearer. We could think about Dan connected with the serpent. And as we go through, there are um, correspondences with most of the tribes, certainly with the ones at the key bases. And then that allows us to see in the tribes some correspondence with the cherubim, that they are like the constellations the cherubim are like the chief faces of the constellations that are gathered around the sun, uh, representing the throne of God. And they represent the constellations as well, the stars in the heavens. This was always a promise that the people of God would be made like the sand on the seashore, spread out throughout all the world, but also like the stars in the heavens. An image of rule, not just of, new, of being innumerable. Yes, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man. Yes, the constellations. Now, um, who are the riders of the horses, and how does the progression of the horses follow the progression of Jesus' own ministry? Yes, um, we have images later on in the horse, the white horse, and the conqueror upon the horse that call our mind back to this. Um, we can think about the 
image that we have later on in that chapter in Revelation and think about different facets of it that map back onto these horses here. The riders we might think of as as angels or as some figures that represent the um, they're sent out by the cherubim. I don't think that we should see these as Christ himself. Later on, we have Christ and the white horse bringing together many of these aspects of the imagery that we have here in this part. So here, they're also connected with the four winds of heaven. They're coming from those different directions, and they also go out to the four corners of the world. And so the four horses could be connected with the winds, they could be connected with the corners of the earth, with the corresponding horns of the altar. They're the authorities that rule over the earth and um, maintain its order within that realm. Well, let's come on and look at the first six seals. Um, the first horse, what's the significance of the description of the first horse? Yes, the first horse, we see already similarities with the horse that will uh, that Christ will be on later on in the book. It's a white, glorious horse. In Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We might think of the red there. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, again, the red, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the first horse it seems to be a, a glorious horse corresponding with the horse that we'll see later on leads the rest of the horses out it's the first to be sent sent by the first of the cherubim as well so maybe a corresponding and um, primacy we might also think of the way that there could perhaps be associations with the days of creation here we've already thought about the fact that seven is an evocative number in scripture, and particularly in the book of Revelation, we see many sevens, and a number of them would seem to have connections with the days of creation. This, I think, is one such example. The first, the dazzling white horse would connect with the bringing of light. And so it's the coming of judgment with that day of the Lord, the, the light horse that leads the way. Yeah, why does the first rider have a bow and a crown? He is, uh, we can think, for instance, of the way that, again, Christ is described going out. He's described in a way that he's a warrior going out to fight. He's, um, it's a conqueror's horse. And then he carries a weapon. He has a crown. It's a kingly mission. And he's bringing judgments with him. And to what extent is this conquest linked to the spread of the gospel? It seems, as we've already noted, that there are ways that we can map the things that are happening in heaven, the things that are happening with the, within the visions, and the things that are happening upon earth. And the message of the gospel is being sent out following the ascension of Christ, 
And it's going out to conquer. It's going out to um, take the nations by storm. And so I think this vision of the horse going out is the initial com- coming out of the gospel and going into the world and conquering um, mm. all who would resist. Yeah. What, what's the significance of the coming on to the second seal and the second horse? What's the significance of the color of the second horse? Here, it seems to be associated with the shedding of blood. Um, so we can think about red being associated with flame and fire and also with blood. And it's a sanguinary horse, a horse that will cause bloodshed, division and war. And that's the the way that we have it described here. So we've got the bow and the crown in the first one. Here we have the great sword and um, for the rider on the red horse. How does the second horse describe the effect of the gospel then if he has a sword? Christ describes the gospel as that which will divide families. It will divide divide daughter from her mother. It will divide people into different camps. Whoever is not for me is against me. That division is one of the very clear effects that we see within the gospels, people being cast out of synagogues, particularly in the gospel of John. And then in the book of Acts, the church's mission leads to bloodshed and division and then bloodshed. Um, Stephen being the great example of the first martyr. This is one of the effects of the gospel virtually wherever it goes. As we follow Paul's mission, there is a counter mission following it of Jewish opponents. And every city to which they go, pretty much, there's some sort of opposition. There's a counter riot. There's some attempt to take their lives. There's um, some stirring up of official opposition to them, whatever it is. But there is this enmity at the heart of the story of Scripture that comes to its forefront in the spread of the gospel. And the second day of creation, how does the second horse relate to the second day of creation? It's not as strong a connection. We might think about it as the division between the firmament, the way in which the second day of creation involves this great division. And here we're seeing something of a great division, but it's a division caused by the sword of the word, a division caused by the enmity that is heightened by the advent of the gospel. Okay, um, it'll make sense to me. Um, we come to the third cherub, and the third horse is a black horse, and the rider has a pair of scales in his hand. Now, what's going on here? The third, third horse is associated with death. It's very fitting the, with famine. It's very fitting that it would have this color. So we've got the horses are not, the color is associated with the judge, sort of judgment they bring. And so there's a blight or a famine. And as a result, this blackness is coming. The scales um, seem to be related to the weighing out of the bread and the other items that are going to be struck as a result of the horse's mission. The effect is upon the crops. So the wheat and the barley and things associated with the bread, but the oil and the wine are not going to be touched, which could be read as related to a division between um, those associated with the unfaithful nation of Israel 
and those associated with the gospel blessings of the oil and wine of the Spirit. And I suppose there's the connection with the third day of creation with the grain, isn't it? Yes. The, the fourth the fourth horse. Now, what what's the significance of the fourth horse and why is it green? Yes, the fourth, fourth horse is a sort of sickly horse. And unsurprisingly, it brings pestilence and um, it brings illness and this plague upon the, the people. Um, and it's followed by death and Hades. We can, again, maybe see this as associated with the dappled or sorrel horses in the book of Zechariah. And uh, the fourth day of creation, is there a connection there with the fourth horse? Well, if there is a connection, it would seem to be the rule that's given to death and Hades. There's a, a sort of dominion given here, connected perhaps to the dominion of the sun, moon and stars on the fourth day of creation. But it's not as pronounced as some of the other connections. Yeah. More generally, the connections with the seven days of creation, I think, are fairly loose. There are some that seem to have some weight to them. Most of them, however, are fairly things that I'd hold fairly lightly. Mm -hmm. Now, the opening of the fifth seal brings the vision of the martyrs under the altar. Who are they and what do they signify? So there's a lot of emphasis upon the martyrs in the book of Matthew, for instance. Jesus talks about his disciples as those following in the footsteps of those who have been persecuted before them as the prophets. Then in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus talks about filling up the measure of um, Jerusalem's sins, the way that Jerusalem is the one that slays the prophets and that the blood of all the faithful from Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, will come upon that nation in that generation. Now, it seems that that emphasis upon the martyrs and their blood that has been slain, uh, that has been shed, is shared by the book of Revelation. And Revelation is presenting this as, first of all, if you're pouring out blood, it would be at the base of the altar. And so the altar represents, relative to the um, tabernacle, it represents the land. Think about the days of creation. The day, third day corresponds with the bronze laver and the bronze altar, the land and the sea. And then as you go into the temple, as you go into the temple or the tabernacle, it is the heavens. And so here you have the blood that's been shed upon the earth that's placed beneath the base of the altar, calling for God to act. And so the Lord hears the blood of Abel calling from the ground. He hears the blood of the martyred saints calling from the ground, calling for judgment upon those who have killed them and calling for vindication that they might be raised up. What happens with the opening of the sixth seal, Alistair? With the sixth seal, we have dooming of or judgment upon humanity more generally. can think about the creation thrown into some sort of disarray. It's very reminiscent of some of the images that we have surrounding the crucifixion, which I don't think is accidental. There's a sort of decreation imagery here the earthquakes the sun becoming black as sackcloth the moon becoming like blood this is imagery that we find as god as it were turns out the lights over pagan kingdoms and nations and empires in isaiah and other of the prophets and here it seems to describe a sort of 
upending and complete unraveling of the cosmic order. The world that it currently exists is going to be removed. Now, that world is not necessarily the physical order. If we talked about um, 50 stars falling from the heavens, we'd know what was meant. We'd know it's a symbol of um, some judgment upon America, for instance. And um, when we're talking about this, um, I think we're dealing with similar sort of imagery. This is a throwing of the a world order into some sort of disarray. And so the rolling up of the sky, and um, that's imagery that we have in Isaiah and elsewhere, the things being shaken, islands removed from their places, um, and all these other um, figures hiding themselves. These are images that we find in other apocalyptic or prophetic literature. And here I think it's it's the same sort of thing. It's yes, the taking of the... up imagery that we find in the Olivet discourse. Mm, the end uh, of the old uh, creation and yeah in eighty seventy. Is the fig tree a reference to the temple, do you think? We can see it that way. In the book in the Gospels, Jesus judges the fig tree as a sign of his judgment upon the temple and upon Israel. And so it would seem a fitting way to understand. Also, the temple, of course, can represent Israel. Israel is the house of God um, in some sense, and the temple is God's house. And there's an association between Israel presenting its hearts and its lives in the context of the temple or the tabernacle and Israel itself. This is the temple is, as it were, Israel's interface with the Lord. Last question, Alistair. What's the great day mentioned in chapter 6, verse 17? I think it refers to AD 70, at least most immediately. I think we can read these sorts of images to refer beyond something like AD 70, um, recognising that the day of the Lord, for instance, as described in the Minor Prophets, is many different days, many different acts of judgment. But through them, we get a sense of this more archetypal reality of the day of the Lord. I think we can think about this in a similar way. So we're seeing a great climactic um, judgment that is effect expected fairly immediately upon Israel. It's going to be within the next few years. It's coming quickly. And so I think this is AD 70. But within this imagery, we can also see a greater day that is um, prefigured. Well, there we are. Fabulous. The Seven Seals, Part 1. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, thank you once again. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.